Today's reading is taken from Nehemiah, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, and you can find this on page 485 of the Pew Bibles. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brilliant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words and we thank you for the ways in which you speak to us through your words. We thank you for this particular series on Nehemiah and the ways that you are encouraging us and growing us as a church and as a benefice uh, through it. And we pray that you do so afresh this morning. Amen. So I don't know uh, whether you've had a chance yet to uh, read Nehemiah through from the beginning. Um, I think I'm on. Um, From beginning to end. And if you haven't, then uh, it's a rainy afternoon. uh, So a perfect opportunity to light the fire, sit down with your Bible and read through uh, the book of Nehemiah. And this particular passage that we've come to today, these few verses, and actually really just the kind of first three verses of this chapter... Uh, are the ones that in my reading and in in my preparation for various sermons over the next few weeks has the one that it's just it's just like a shining beacon uh, just shining in the light of Nehemiah and I think the reason for that is because there is something that God seems to be speaking to the church with a capital C uh, in this nation at the moment that is so so vital and so important in the life of God's people that every conference I go to, every talk that I listen to online from uh, the bigger churches in this nation and the churches that are leading the way in this nation, uh, things that I see coming from uh, the diocese and all kinds of various things all seem to be coming under this theme. It's almost as if God is saying something very specific uh, to the church. Uh, And this particular passage that we've got this morning speaks right into that. And I'm going to say right at the beginning it's something that I am incredibly passionate about and that comes with a warning because sometimes when I'm passionate about something it can come across as quite strong Uh, but now it's not meant to come across as condemnation but hopefully as encouragement and hope for the future and when I refer to the church this morning I am talking about church with a capital C you can see it as the church of this nation I'm not particularly talking about uh, necessarily St Mary's or St Mark's or whatever church uh, you're here representing this morning 
Just to recap very briefly, uh, Nehemiah, we discovered last week, was a cupbearer to the king. We discovered that was a very high honour, actually. It wasn't just a case of bringing him his wine, but actually it was a very high respected position. Uh, He would have been uh, almost, in a way, the king's right-hand man. I heard someone describe it earlier this week, is that because his job was to uh, taste the wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned before giving it to the king, uh, the, the closest description we have today is like the head of the secret service. Uh, I don't know quite if that's an accurate translation, but he was very respected, had a very high position uh, with the king, probably knew the king very well and probably on personal terms. He had a comfortable, he had a good life. And then his friends came along and told him about the state of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was something that he was passionate about the people in Jerusalem. He knew that Ezra had gone ahead of him and led a wave of people back to Jerusalem, that they'd rebuilt the temple. He assumed that everything was going well. And then he discovered that the walls that surrounded the people, the security that was around the place of Jerusalem, were in disrepair still. And they hadn't been repaired. In fact, actually, they were worse than they were before. And we learned last week how much that grieved Nehemiah, how much it hurt him to hear about the state of Jerusalem, how much it hurt his heart, how much it hurt his mind, how damaged it made him. And then he just fell on his knees in weeping and fasting and praying for days, he describes it as. And then we come to this point at which Nehemiah has been waiting for an opportunity to approach the king with a request. And the request is to go and to rebuild those walls. He wants the king's permission to not only go, but to take some people and resources with him. And he's been waiting for the opportunity. He's been waiting for the right time. And most commentators today reckon that he was waiting for something between four and ten months. That's four and ten months of grief and hurt and pain and sorrow and desire to do something to see change. And he's sitting with that for those ten months. And we can assume by the king's response when he sees him on this particular day, which we're going to come to in a minute, that for that ten months, Nehemiah has been holding it together. He has been saying that things are okay and he's, he's put on a bit of a face in front of the king and he's served the king happily. He's gone about his normal business despite suffering with this grief and it comes to a point. Now, don't get me wrong, Nehemiah is, is very strategic. And the timing of this is very strategic as well because there was a time in each year where the king was not able to refuse a request of his people if it was reasonable. And Nehemiah was waiting for that time. He was being strategic. But in the meantime, he was almost pushing down that grief in order to continue to serve the king. And then it comes to this point where he cannot hold it anymore. Where he just cannot put on that front anymore. That he's, he's just, he's, the grief just overtakes. And he's before the king, and his face is full of sadness. And the king looks at him and he says, Nehemiah, I know you're not ill, because if you were ill, you wouldn't be in today. So what is, what's with your face? Why are you looking so sad? And the king can see a physical, markable difference in the face of his cupbearer, who he knows so well. 
And he asks him what's wrong, and then Nehemiah just pours out his heart. And, and, and here's the thing, you see, because it's not only is Nehemiah being really vulnerable in that moment, which is a really significant moment in the, light, in the part of the story. He is being incredibly vulnerable, which is great. But remember also, this is an autobiography. So he's also being incredibly vulnerable in telling us that he was being vulnerable, is he not? By saying, this was the reality of what I was going through on that day. And this is the message, I think, that God is speaking to the church at the moment. Vulnerability is a strength, not a weakness. You see, we for so long have seen vulnerability as a weakness. That if someone shows their emotion, if someone shows how things truly are, if someone removes the front and shows who they really are, then that's seen as a weakness. But it's not. When you look in scripture, vulnerability is not a weakness. Look at every single leader that God called and look how honest they were before him and before others. Read the Psalms. Actually, if vulnerability is a weakness, you wouldn't have half the Psalms. Because look how vulnerable the psalmists are when they write and they pour out their hearts to God. And, And yes, in some cases they weren't intended to be read by the universal church thousands of years later. But in many cases they were written as songs that the church would have sung together or that they would have sung together in the temple. There's a real brutal honesty and vulnerability and it's throughout scripture and we've lost it in the church. We have put on these masks on a Sunday morning where we walk in and pretend that everything is okay when it's not. And we hide behind three of the most dangerous words in the church today. I'm fine, thanks. Now on the face of it, those words don't seem particularly dangerous. And actually, if you are fine, they're not. (laughs) Because you can be fine. It's all right to be fine as well. Let me just say that right now. It's okay to be okay. (laughs) Okay? God is good. And I'm okay. And that's all right. That's a good thing. But there are times in our lives when we're not okay. There are times in our lives when things are not fantastic. They're not rosy. They're not perfect. Things are not great. And we can get up on a Sunday morning. We can slap on our Sunday mask. We can walk through the doors pretending everything is okay. For an hour and a half, we can have lovely coffee together. We can get back in our car. We can get home and then crash. Because we've been pretending for an hour and a half. Pretending to be something and someone we're not. Why is that? Now, for a bit of light relief, because this is, this is a strong message, I've got a little video. Um, it's very American, so bear with it. Um, but it makes me chuckle in a way. And then here's Now, it's funny and it's silly. <laughs> uh, but there may be, even if you haven't got a family, some element of truth. But it's that whole kind of thing that actually we feel that we need to slap on our Sunday morning mask and pretend that everything's okay even if it's not. And why is that dangerous? Well, it's because we were, we were made and created by a God who himself is community. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, he is perfect community. And if we're made in the image of God, then that means we're made to be in community. <coughs> 
And if there is one place on this earth where you should be able to be who you really are, it should be here. It really should be here. Or in any church that you walk into. If there's one place where you should be able to be the real you, it's in the presence of God with his people. Because what we recognise is when you think about the cross and we think about everything that Jesus did for us on the cross and you think about that moment where Jesus died for all people and there's nobody outside of that, you realise that the foot of the cross is a level playing field where all of us are invited to come as we are. Scripture doesn't say that when you got it all sorted, Jesus died for you. (laughs) No, whilst you were still sinners, Christ died for you. We are all broken, messed up human beings. The gospel is an offensive message because it tells us that. (laughs) It tells us we're all messed up and we need Jesus. We need the grace that Rick was praying about earlier this morning. We need the grace of God and we need the support of others as well. No man is an island. That's absolute nonsense. We were all made and born to be in community. And so if we are going to be a church, with a capital C, in this nation, but here, a church that enables people to come as they really are, then there's one thing we need to stop being so good at and there's one thing we need to get good at. There's, there's more things, but I'm just going to focus on two that we see from Nehemiah here. The first thing we need to make sure that we stop being so good at, and, and it's hard to not be good at this because it's, it becomes so natural to us, is judgment. Uh, the judgment of others. We're all, let's, let's be honest, we're very good at this, aren't we? <laughs> we're so good at judging others and so quick to do it as well. Uh, when I was uh, um, visiting uh, the university that I was going to go to, I stayed with a friend of mine called Mark. Mark is a great Christian guy. He was a huge inspiration uh, to me uh, earlier in my life. And he was already at the University of Cheltenham. And so when I went for my interview, I, I stayed the night with, at his house. And then we went the following morning uh, before my interview, we went to a friend of his called Phil. And Phil uh, was the leader of the Christian Union Worship. Uh, he was a great guy. And we were there to talk about songs that uh, my friend Mark was going to be doing at the CU uh, that night and then in walks this guy called Ewan now Ewan was a punk uh, and I don't mean punk as, as in he was like piercings everywhere the baggy jeans the massive chain coming down the whole lot and I distinctly remember in that moment thinking I wonder how Phil copes living with a non-Christian I was a fairly young Christian at the time, so hopefully you'll forgive that snap judgment. But I, thought, I, I remember thinking it. I wonder what it's like to live with someone like Ewan. Ewan then sits down on the sofa, pulls out a magazine called Christianity Magazine. Ewan opens Christianity Magazine. He turns to Phil and said, Phil, they reviewed our album and it got four stars out of five. Ewan was in a Christian punk band. Ewan is now the godparent to one of my children. Uh, I made that snap judgment in a moment, but we all do it, don't we? But actually, if, if, if we're going to be in that position of judgment, then, then we're actually not doing church in the way that church should be done. 
Because when, when you think about it, everything that's good enough for Jesus is good enough for us, okay? If, if loving was good enough for Jesus, then loving is good enough for us. If, if having a Sabbath was good enough for Jesus, then sure enough, having a Sabbath is good enough for us. If, if you know, all the things that Jesus did, we are in, you know, it's good enough for him, it's good enough for us, with one exception. When Jesus ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of the Father at the ascension, he was given the right to judge. And him alone it is not our right to judge. You see, we are a people free from condemnation in Christ Jesus, as Romans tells us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if we have no condemnation, what right do we have to condemn and judge others whose lifestyle may be different to us? Who may be parent in a different way to how we would parent? Or maybe whose marriage isn't quite what we think a marriage should look like? Or those people who have a different view on sexuality, or those people who have different views on other things that are happening in the world, what right do we have to judge them when we ourselves have been made free of that judgment through the blood of Jesus? And we're on that level playing field of the foot of the cross. And, and I know we do it, and it's not, I'm, not, I'm not saying this to make you feel really guilty, <laughs> but just saying it to say, look, we need to practice not being quite so good at it. <laughs> And the way that we practice not by being so good at it is to replace it with something else. Okay, now you all know that we are habitual people. We all have habits. And it is impossible, actually impossible, without the work of you know, a miracle, it's impossible to break a habit. Anyone who's ever done any kind of neuroscience studies will know you can't physically break a habit. What you have to do is replace it. You have to train your brain to create a new habit that replaces the old habit. So what new habit can we take on? The new habit we can take on is something called empathy. And empathy is one of the most countercultural things there is. Because empathy recognises the suffering in somebody else remembers suffering we may have experienced and through that forms connection. Uh, I can't describe empathy really well. I, I wasn't sure whether to show this video, but I think I will, Paul, if, I, if we can get I'm making Paul work really hard this morning. Um, because as much as I can try to describe empathy, um, I think Brené Brown, who is a, a great church leader in the States, she's a great writer as well, um, has, has done this brilliant little video uh, on empathy, which I hope will help us this morning. empathy and why is it very different than sympathy empathy fuels connection sympathy drives disconnection empathy it's very interesting Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy perspective taking the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth staying out of judgment not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole 
and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, I'm down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh uh-huh. No, you want a sandwich? Um, Empathy is a choice and it's a vulnerable choice because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. At least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. (laughs) John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. Rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. And and so you don't think I'm just showing you a self-help video. That's the heart of the gospel. Jesus stepped into this world as one of us so that he could empathise with us. He is the very model of empathy. That he stepped into this world, lived like we do, experienced suffering like we do so that when we suffer, he can say, I get it and I'm with you in it. Uh, in, the, in the Alpha Course, it says that the cross of Christ makes sense of our suffering because it reveals to us a God who knows what it's like to suffer. And so if we're going to be a church that welcomes people as they are, then we need to lay down judgment and replace it with that level of empathy that says, I'm with you in this. And it's a painful and it's a difficult place to be. And, and, and in a way, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, we're very British, that's the trouble. If, if I'm being brutally honest, it's that whole, someone walks through the door and you say, how are you doing? And you know you don't really want to hear the answer. And you're hoping they're just going to say, I'm fine, thanks, and they're going to walk away. If you don't really want to hear the answer, then don't really ask the question. Because this, says Jesus, is how the world will know you're my disciples but how you love one another. And actually the hero of this part of the story of Nehemiah isn't so much Nehemiah himself, although I really do admire his vulnerability, but who I really want us to learn from this week is the king. Look at his response. Look at how he responds to Nehemiah's vulnerability. 
Look at how he listens and seeks to understand. Now that king wasn't a Jew, so he can't pretend to know what it feels like for Nehemiah to see the suffering of Jerusalem. He can't pretend that he can make it better, but he listens, he understands, and then he suffers with Nehemiah. And then he helps. And I think it's a beautiful example to us of the most important message for the church at the moment is that vulnerability is a strength and not a weakness. And if there is one place on this earth where every single one of you should be able to come as you are, warts and all, it should be here. It's not a license to moan about everything to everyone. But it's a license to be real and more importantly to be you before the God who accepts you as you are and the community he's created to support you in your walk with him. And this is how the world will know that we're his disciples, by how we love one another. Amen.